0: And welcome to the Nosy Fox podcast with me, Natasha Myrta. Each episode will be an interview with someone that I find interesting and has a story to tell that I believe is worth sharing. Some of the people I'll be talking to are people that I know, but some are strangers that for one reason or another, I wanted to get to know. This is a podcast about people and storytelling, two of my favorite things. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy If there is anything in life that I have learned so far, it's that you have to make the most of it. I know it sounds terribly cliché, and I know I'm only 29, but it's true. We have one life to make it count. My happiness is my number one priority, but ten years ago, if someone asked me what I want to achieve in life, I would have said something career-related. Work is, of course, still important, but truly being happy and using my life to its absolute potential is what I tend to focus on now. One of my favourite books I've ever read is called Lone Rider by a British woman named Elspeth Beard. In 1982, at the age of 23, Elspeth became one of the first British women to ride a motorbike around the world. Her book tells the story of her adventures. After I read the book, I thought to myself, wow, she has really lived her life. She was only young at this point, so had a lot more to live, but what a start. I know there is so much bad going on in the world today, temperatures are rising, ice is melting, natural disasters are becoming more frequent, and it seems conflict within and among different countries is more prevalent than ever. It makes me sad that we are still fighting against racism and sexism, and that discrimination and inequality is still present in the workplace, in social situations and in our communities. Having said this, I think that change is on the horizon. Perhaps I am naive, or maybe even ignorant, but I still believe that there are more good people in the world than bad. This episode is about loss and grief, perseverance and achievement, using your time doing good things for other people, and truly using your life to its best potential. This episode is about hope, love, and the kindness we find in other people. This episode is about one man and his extraordinary life. The final episode of the first season of the Nosy Fox podcast is with 78-year-old Eugene O'Leary. Originally from Cork but living in Hoth, County Dublin, Eugene worked as a lighthouse keeper for 11 years, during which he attained the rank of captain. His seagoing career sadly ended in 1980 after the cot death of his three-month-old daughter, Claire. Eugene then went on to work in Dublin Port Radio, controlling the movement of shipping and in and out of Dublin Port and in Dublin Bay. Eugene and his wife lost two more of their children, the most recent being 18-year-old Helen in 2002. Since then, Eugene has devoted his life to raising money for Our Lady's Children Hospital, Crumlin, in Dublin. He hasn't held charity events or done raffles like many others would to raise money. Every penny that Eugene has raised has been through cycles, walks and marathons that he has done. In the past 20 years, Eugene has raised over €150,000 for Crumlin Children's Hospital. Eugene starts our conversation by explaining why he has raised this money for the Children's Hospital.
1: For the simple reason that my daughter Helen was a patient there. She was, uh, she was born with a congenital heart defect. When she was six weeks old, she'd open heart surgery. Then when she was three years old, she'd open heart surgery again and had tried to repair her aortic valve. And they couldn't do a good job on it. So when she came to the age of five, she started to go downhill very fast and the circulation in her arms and her legs more or less shut down. So they took her in and decided the only hope for her was to give her a mechanical heart valve. And uh, I I can always remember being called into a room with Dr. Freddie Woods, who was the the surgeon. And he said, uh, my wife and myself were called in. And he said, of course, you realise this is a very high risk operation. And I was in bits, you know. And I said, would you give her 50-50? Always said 982, and I, I was in shock. 982—is that to survive or to die? I always said to survive, and um, I've always said since that you know, if he was a woman, I could have kissed him. You know, pretend that. But yes. the, she had a uh, uh, she had a mechanical va- valve fitted. She was very. She was in intensive care then for about three weeks, just a little over three weeks. And um, we didn't think she would survive but she survived, and she came out of it, and she took off like a house on fire. She was nearly seven before she started school but she caught up very, very quickly and she ended up in uh, Santa Sabina secondary school in Sutton and in sixth year she she was head prefect and she was pupil of the year so she took off. So ever but, but because she had a mechanical heart valve she, she had to have her blood checked every month. She was on this medication warfarin and she had to have her blood checked every month. But uh, it was only involved maybe half an hour out to the hospital and they checked check the blood and they'd give us the results and they'd adjust the warfarin accordingly. But uh, when she came to 18, her care was changed to an adult hospital. And the adult hospital decided that um, it would be sufficient to check her every six months. She had the first six months check-up. Unfortunately, she was dead before the second one. What actually happened was the warfarin had not alone thinned out her blood. It thinned out the walls of her arteries as well. And one of them ruptured into her stomach. And she was dead within 24 hours. They could do nothing. Her blood was so thin they couldn't operate. And But um, we've always said if she had still been a patient in Cromlin it would have been detected. You know, yeah. thing. So, uh, unfortunately, Helen died. Then after... The, on the day of our funeral, we were invited back to the, well, it was the pier house in Holt at the time. The, the owner of the pier house, his son, was married to my sister-in-law and invited us back for tea and sandwiches. And one of the people who attended was the local detective sergeant, Gary Kelly. And Gary, I was sitting on my own, I was really down, and I was sitting on my own and Gary came over to me and he said, he "Just, just to strike up a conversation... He said, you used to cycle to work, didn't you? I worked in Dublin Port. And I said, yeah. And he said, why did you give it up? And I said, because my bike was stolen. Well, he said, if you ever get a bike again, there's an open invitation for you to uh, cycle with the guards for the hospice in Rohini. So, uh, as I say, I, I, I really gave up and I got the opportunity of taking early retirement and I took it and with my redundancy money and my early retirement money I bought a bike (laughs) and I did the first cycle that I did was with the guards went from uh, Rohini to uh, right down to Kilkenny and I'd never cycled anything like that length before but I did it anyway How long did it take? Oh it took maybe five or six hours you know well, we were flying along. there was a big group of us. There were mostly guards, but there was a, there was a few people like myself who weren't uh, uh, who weren't members of the guard. We, we, we were invited along, and um, so the, then the next one was uh, from uh, Santry. No, no, the next one was from um, James Connolly Memorial Hospital. There's a uh, there's a hospital there as well. From there to Mullingar. And then the the last one that I did was from uh, Santry Garda station up to Carlingford, I think. But after a while, the Garda cycles kind of fell through for a while. And uh, my wife just happened to see an ad in an old Sunday paper where Crumlin Hospital was looking for cyclists to go on a 500k cycle. That's 100, 100 kilometers a day for five days in South Africa. Uh, but you had to raise 4500 And um, it's six weeks to do it. And uh, I just said, I'm going. I just made up my mind, I'm going. That's it.
0: How old were you at this point?
1: Uh, oh, wait, no, that's that's 20 years ago, I suppose. It was my it was early 50s. OK. Yeah. So I said, I'm going. And I, uh, the first thing I did was I uh, had to raise 4500 The first thing I did was to ring... The, the local guard, the superintendent, Nicky Keneally, I'd seen him doing a cycle in a shopping centre on a training frame. He was raising money for the hospice, and I asked him where he'd buy a training frame. So he told me, got a training frame, got permission to do uh, Northside Shopping Centre, uh, Artane Castle and Donhamede Shopping Centre. And uh, I set up my uh, training frame at the entrance to the East Pier here in Holt. And I uh, think, and I not alone raised four thousand five hundred. I raised six thousand five hundred in in the in in six weeks. And now, so you
0: were you were while you were fundraising, you're on a training frame cycling.
1: Cycling, yes. i would cycled for eight hours on, on a training frame.
0: So you were kind of killing two birds with one stone. You were training and fundraising.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. very clever. Yeah. So, oh uh up in Northside shopping centre they're always, the young fellas are always see I had a notice up in front of the bike uh, 8 hour non-stop cycle and the young fellows would be, be watching me and immediately if I get off the bike to go to the toilet they say hey mister you're cheating, you're cheating take down that notice you're cheating <laughs> but quite the opposite happened to me on the on the pier and hold this young fella comes along he's about 12 years of age And he had a very posh accent, you know. And he he said to me, do you ever stop? He saw the notice, you see, non-stop. He said, do you ever stop? And I said, well, sometimes I have to get off the bike to go into the toilet. And he's looking at the notice and he says, "Uh, do you mind if I make a suggestion? And I said, no, go ahead. He said, I think I might have a solution for you. And uh, I said, go ahead, what is it? He says... Have you ever considered wearing an adult nappy? <laughs> now I came to the conclusion afterwards that the only way he could know anything about that was if he had, there was some member of his family who had to wear an adult nappy, because an ordinary twelve-year-old wouldn't know anything about that. Well, like, so that, that's well, uh, that that's the uh, that was my cycling. Then I went to, I went to South Africa with the team, and uh, the, the great thing about the place we were in. There's a place called Omschlanga Rocks and the great thing about that is in the area around Durban. And um, South Africa was great because we were in a place called Omschlanga Rocks and it seems that they had great time for the Irish people there. It seems that in, during the Zulu Wars that a group of miners from Tipperary were, were out there working and they marched from uh, Durban to Lady Smith, and they took took part in a Zulu battle against the British wow. and things, and uh, so they have a great time for for Irish people. But we got an alarm clock every morning. It was fascinating. I never saw anything like it. The, you get a knock on the door, and two guys outside with guitars and they're playing African music. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was great. But that was that oh, was wonderful. That, that was South Africa. Then so you
0: raised how much in six weeks? In
1: thousand five hundred. It's amazing. Yeah. So after that, then I went to um, South the Next one was Hungary, Lake Balaton in Hungary, uh, uh, then Monterey in California, Flagstaff, Arizona, Athens in Georgia, and up at uh, on the Canadian side of Niagara Falls. There were 500k cycles where you did 100k a day. You went out 50 and came back 50 a day for five days. You know, but a big group of people and no problem because you, they, they all pace you along. You you, you you didn't even feel it. You didn't even get tired. You know, it was great. That's incredible.
0: Yeah. And tell me, you um, you've walked the the Camino a good few times.
1: Yeah, I've walked the uh, Portuguese Camino uh, actually in two in two stages because in, uh, I started in Porto, and I, I walked up to a place called, called... I ended up in a place called Moss, which is right beside Vigo Airport. It's about three kilometres from Vigo Airport. But what happened was, in that part of Portugal, it's all old Roman roads, paved, ro- paving stones, you know, it's co- <laughs> And uh, I was coming to this hostel... I forget the name of the place, but it was on the first, uh, very first day I was after leaving Porto and I come into the very first hostel and one of my walking poles stuck in the, uh, uh, in the cobbles and my hand was through the strap of it and I went in between my legs and I had a rucksack on my back and I went straight down, flat on my face on the cobbles and my nose snapped oh. and went right over to one side so I thought this is the end of my Camino but the hostel was only 50 metres away I went as I'm walking into the hospital this is unbelievable now as I'm walking into the hospital a man was walking out and he saw me and he, he walked over he grabbed my nose like this and he pulled it and put it back into place it turned out he was an Australian doctor and he was accompanied by two Australian nurses and they cleaned me up and they they, they, they dressed all, all I, I was badly cut up and they they, they dressed everything up and uh, follow they cleaned me up again that evening and the following morning and I was able to continue on. But when I got to Moss in, oh, in, in Spain, I got to Moss in Spain, I just crossed over the border and got to Moss. The lady in the in the pilgrim hostel, she said to me, You better go home because the the the, the uh those cuts are not going to heal in this weather. It was real soggy, you know, they were real soggy. And she could see that they were turning white at the side. And she said, I don't speak very good English, but my son does. And he'll speak to you in the evening. So he did. And he phoned the airport. It turned out that uh, Ryan and I were flying there at the time and they were flying home the next day. So he booked a flight for me and... Uh, no, he, he. I say he just booked it. I paid for it myself, at sixty-five euro or something like that, and I got home the next. Got home the next day. So. Uh,
0: and did you the, have to go to hospital to have any surgery or anything? Or no, your I
1: didn't. Nose no, I didn't, totally no, fixed. You, you, all you can see is that a white scar there on my nose. You know, that's But, uh, but uh, anyway, I went. I went back, and I. Uh, I did. I did it. Did did the second stage of it, and on the second stage. The very first night I stayed in the, in the hostel in Moss again and uh, I got about a mile up the road and when I set out the next morning I got a mile up, about a mile up the road and I met these three young Spanish people
0: yeah.
1: and uh, they stopped me and they asked if they could walk with me because they were trying to learn English and they'd, they'd heard me speaking in the, in the hostel and where they couldn't understand the English people couldn't understand the accent they could understand me, and they asked if they could come along. So they came along with me. there was a a girl, twenty-one-year-old girl, and her boyfriend, and his brother, who was twenty-four. And uh, uh, for that, so every evening the older fella would, uh, even though I had very little Spanish and they had very little English. We could hold conversations all day long, all along the way. It was unbelievable. But every evening, the older fellow would go to the supermarket, and he'd get enough stuff to make a traditional Spanish meal for the four of us. For, for the four of us, yeah. And uh, they would cook it, and they wouldn't. They wouldn't allow me to even do the help with the washing up. In the evening they'd cook the meal and they'd dish it up. And they wouldn't let me uh, even do the washing up. They they said they treated they, you like a king. No, they adopted me as their Irish granddad. <laughs> oh, that's so lovely. That's <laughs> what I said. So I went all the way to Santiago with them. Then, as I say, I walked the, uh, I cycled, the the I cycled the full Camino from uh, Pamplona, right across the north of Spain. To uh, Santiago.
0: What did you make of Pamplona? It's famous for the Running of the Bulls, and, uh, well, and hey, there
1: hey, is hey. Yeah, it was these. It cost a fortune to stay in a hotel there. Yeah, really? Yeah. But anyway, uh, I did that, and then I did the uh, the, the the one out to uh, Mushia and Cape Finisterre four times.
0: And what did you make of Finisterre?
1: Finisterre, I loved it, and I, but but I like Mushia better still. Really? Yeah, yeah. I love Mojia, yeah.
0: My dad and I have done the Camino together a few times and we walked out to Finisterre and we loved it.
1: Oh, right. Well, Moshia is very, it's uh, a it's, it's like Finisterre. The sea is coming right in. You can look down and see the fish in the water and uh, there's a a, um, a a church there right out on the point and it's called um, Nostra Senora de la Barca, the Our Lady of the Boat. Uh, it seems the tradition is that Our Lady landed there to help St. James convert Spain, you know. And uh, they have the church right out, right out on the end. and, and uh, The place is actually, you can, go right, you can go right up to the top then, uh, to Monte Carpino. It's a little mountain over the... And you can look right down... i got some great photographs. You look down on top of the, the town, it's absolutely brilliant, you know. Well, maybe I, that's, I, I, that's, loved, I loved it.
0: That's maybe the one that I need to do next. Oh, now, it's worth doing, for, yeah. for people that don't know anything about the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, it is a pilgrimage um, and you walk and when you stop, you get stamps in your Camino passport along the way. You did something a little bit unusual. You carried a passport in your... Daughter's name. Can you yeah. tell me about that?
1: Yeah, I carried a passport in my, da- in my daughter's name. Now you you get the you get the passport in St James's Church in James's Street in Dublin. Uh, you, you get it for a donation for a, a tenner, I think it is. Yeah, and uh, so I got two of them. I got my own and I got my da- one in my daughter's name. Uh, so as as I went along the road, I got mine stamped and I got my daughter stamped. And when I got to Mushia, I uh, handed in my daughter's passport, I handed in my, my daughter's passport, and I got this uh, Compostella or, uh, certificate to say that she'd accompanied me all along the way. And then when I got to uh, Finisterre, I did the very same thing, I collected her Fisterana uh, to to say that she'd accompanied me down to Cape Finisterre as well. Yeah, it was brilliant. So we... We have it at home. It's pride of place at home. Our certificate, we have them framed. You know, our two certificates, we have them framed. Mine are just thrown in a drawer, but hers are,
0: <laughs> uh,
1: are, are uh, her, hers are in frames. You know.
0: And can I ask you, before Helen died, <clears throat> she would obviously had, you know, a lot of hurdles throughout her life. But up until she died, you know, you said she achieved a lot in school and she was very popular. Was she, you know? for someone that didn't know about her health, was she, you know, apparently completely normal and functioning, you know? She
1: she was completely normal. And uh, the type of person she was, she was was a great character, but the type of person she was, she she didn't get enough marks in her... She wanted to do psychology, but she didn't get enough marks in her leaving cert to do psychology. So what she did, she she always found a a way of doing things. She did a post-leaving cert course, and she got into All Hallows, the, 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 I'll, I'll bring. I'll go back to that in a second, she got a place in All Hallows to do psychology. But I remember the type of person she was, I remember saying to her, Helen, that would be a great job, you could get a job in personnel as a personnel manager or something, you know. And she actually screamed at me, she says, dah, all you ever think about is money. She says, I want to help battered wives and deprived children. That's what I want to do. You know, th- that's the type of person she was. But uh, th- going back to that, uh, she uh, just after she died, we got, we got her acceptance. Uh, the, 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 her tutor in, uh, in the college that she was in up at Northside, uh, Jim O'Dea, he tried to he tried to block it. He 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 didn't want us to get it because you know he thought it would, it would be hurtful, you know, if we got it. But he failed to do it. And we got it anyway. But it, it it didn't it didn't matter really, you know.
0: Yeah. That's matter. wonderful. That's yeah. wonderful. It's very sad, but it's wonderful that she eventually got what she really wanted. <laughs> oh, she
1: did. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: And tell me um you you and your wife had Nine children in total.
1: We've nine children in total. And
0: you've lost three?
1: We've lost three. We lost uh little girl, Claire, she died at three months old uh, of a cot death. Then my uh, eldest daughter, Sharon, uh, she was living in London and she died from non Hodgkin's lymphoma, she was 24. And then Helen died at 19.
0: Did you ever think that? Why Why me? How, how could I possibly have lost three children?
1: Yeah, yeah I, I, and I still, I still ask myself the question, you know, why? Did I do something wrong? I don't know. I don't know. Do I, there'll never be an answer to that. You know, there'll never be an answer to that. No. So we have, uh, but thankfully we have six children alive. You know, yeah. m- my eldest lad, he's about 47 now. Uh, and he lives in Kinsealee. Then I have a son living in Balbriggan. I have a daughter living in Balbriggan. I have a daughter married down in Wexford. And then our youngest, uh, Jenny, she's living at home.
0: <laughs> Lovely. So you've still got one, one in the nest. I've still got
1: one and she looks after my wife, you know. And uh, she's very attached to my wife. So Yeah.
0: And tell me, um, obviously you've done an enormous amount of walking and cycling and when COVID... Hit, you know, you were restricted to a five-kilometer radius, and you had to cocoon. How did you find that?
1: I didn't like it. I didn't like having to cocoon, but I still, I, I kept. But uh, well, I just went to the shop, shops every day. But um, I felt very restricted. But then they opened up to five kilometers, and I was wondering what I could do with five kilometers. So I looked up on the GPS and I found it from home to Baldoyle Church. You were allowed to go out and it's supposed to be exercise. Well <laughs> I could go from home to Baldoyle Church, which is exactly five kilometres. If I walk five kilometres out and five kilometres back, that's ten kilometres. So what I decided to do was walk a thousand kilometres in a hundred days. And uh, by just doing that, just along the road, over and back each day for 100 days, and it didn't matter whether it rained or not, I just kept going, you know, for the 100 days. And it was reasonable weather all the way, but um, it, uh, it raised 7,500. Just people donating all along the way, yeah. And
0: so in the near 20 years that you've been raising money, roughly, how much do you reckon that you've raised?
1: Anything up to 150,000.
0: That's really quite. I don't think I've ever met somebody that's raised so much money for charity.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but it's over twenty years, you know. (laughs)
0: Yeah,
1: and I I still keep going. You know, well, you see, I'm seventy-eight now, and by keeping going, I'm keeping myself, you know, fit. It's uh, if I took a break, and I have done. If I took a break for a month, it'd be like starting all over again. You know, at my age, I'd seize up. (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. And tell me you you were a, a lighthouse keeper for eleven years.
1: I was a lighthouse keeper for eleven years and I did I was stationed in most of the lighthouses around the coast and uh, then I I was stationed at Hook Point in Wexford and it's very. it's kind of unusual for somebody I was in, I was twenty nine, thirty. It's kind of unusual for somebody that age. To be stationed at a land station, they keep the land stations for the older keepers that have done their time, you know. And uh, I knew that my next station was going to be uh, was going to be a rock station, and I'd be away from home a lot. And uh, my vo- my wife was a young woman, and we had two children, and I decided to pack it in. And I packed it in, and I went fishing for a short time in Hold, uh, which was a, a disaster. Because you never got a decent week's wages, and then uh, a guy got me a job with Irish uh, shipping, and uh, they paid for my education, and eventually I ended up as, as captain of a couple of ships, and uh, they, they are, you know, on coastal ships near continental, and uh, I suppose that was it. But through that, because I had the qualification. I was, happened to be going back to the ship. It was, it, we carried steel from Hall Bowling, over to Moston in North Wales and over to Liverpool. And I was going back to the ship one evening and a guy who lived up just the road from me uh, told me that there were five of them attending the Nautical College in Cork. They needed a qualif- there was a new port radio station being started up in, in, uh, in Dublin. And they needed new people. Now he said to me, two of us, I know for a fact, two of us are not going to pass the exams. So he said, would you you not try? He said, I'll put in a word for you and I'll I'll mention your name. So he did, and I got an appointment for uh, an interview. I went in, got the job. And I've I've spent twenty years in Dublin Port Radio as a a port controller in Dublin Port Radio. Yeah, it's
0: amazing. Uh, What a career change! Sea captain to to the ports. Yeah.
1: So so that. So then, when when I, as I say, when my daughter Helen died, and I I kind of gave up everything, and I got the opportunity to get early retirement, I took early retirement at sixty, and my charity work started from there.
0: (laughs) And. I mean, obviously you've lost three children, so you know, I can see why it's Crumlin's children that you're raising money for. Is it because over the years so many people in Crumlin you know, t- yeah, had well, an impact well, on your life?
1: Well, and well, yeah, well, one, one of the main reasons is that um, it never cost us one cent for all her treatment, all, all her life in Crumlin Hospital. Not one cent. The only thing it cost us was bus fares, and never cost us anything. So, in order to pay back something, so that other people can avail of the same thing and can get treatment free of charge as well, you know, because uh, even even dinners out there, you, you were given a ticket for your dinner and it was subsidised. I think you paid a euro f- for your dinner. You know <laughs> that, that, that everything is everything is more or less free of charge out there. You know, That's it, amazing. It, it's amazing. Well, it's done. Through, it, These things are done free of charge. All the ancillaries, are all done free of charge because people raise money for the the hospital, you know.
0: And you've obviously made the most of your life from listening to you. It's really quite incredible. Have you ever not felt like just giving up after the third child died? You know, how did you not just...
1: No, but you see, the, the, the third child that died was Helen. Yeah. and that's what sort of really started me off now I used to run the Dublin City Maritons and uh, d- 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 before I started but, but I'd never raised more than maybe 200 euros but then when I started this I raised thousands You know, it's unbelievable like to, even to me it's, it's, it's a bit of a miracle it's
0: a, <laughs> it's a huge achievement
1: you must be
0: a hero in Crumlin At this
1: point, I probably am. You know, there'll
0: be a little statue out the front.
1: I will know. See, uh, people raise an awful lot more money than me. People hold events, yeah, and they hold big events like golfing, golfing events, and that. They use, they raise huge amount amount amounts of money. You know, even in, even when I cycle with the guards, they it's only a one day cycle, but. They raise huge amount of money, like something like eighty thousand, just for a day's cycling, you know, wow. because they're subsidised by by different companies. And one of the strange things is uh, that you, you, when you cycle with them, and the last cycle that I did with them was up to Carlingford, and you stay in the hotel overnight, you see, and uh, they hold a raffle, and they, as I say, it's totally subsidised, so they hold a raffle, and. Uh, they had about 30 prizes and I won the very last prize and to me it was absolutely useless it was the script for a radio play that had been donated by the Gleason family Brendan Gleason had taken part in the radio play and it was all wrapped up in a nice folder and lovely ribbon around it and the whole lot and I read the play of it it was useless to me so I threw, I threw it on top of a wardrobe and a woman uh, two years later, a woman da- had a little coffee shop, Ireland's Cafe, down on the seafront in Holt. And she was doing a fundraiser for the, the hospice in Rahini. And she was doing it in, in, down in the Holt Yacht Club. So I told her about this thing that I'd won and uh, asked her would it be any good to her. For the thing. and she said yeah she'd probably uh, raffle it or something you know so I gave it to her a few days afterwards I met her and uh, she says this is unbelievable she says do you know the the, the, the strip for the radio play you gave me I said yeah she said I uh, auctioned it and there was only one bid and we made a thousand euros <laughs> Uh, it was Jeanette Byrne who sings the part of Edith Piaf in the Abbey Theatre she bought it Thousands euros so then she offered to give me half it for my charity and I, I, I said no because I'd read the thing it was donated by the Gleeson family to raise funds for the hospice in Raheny. so that was it so the, the hospice got the money anyway so that was great
0: that's brilliant now what's next on the agenda
1: my next is hopefully now. Uh, I'm going to uh, the Azores, the Azores Islands off the, they are thousand miles west of Portugal, uh, to the island of Terceira, and the reason I'm going there. Now, when I was at sea, we used to pass in close to Ponta Delgada in the Azores, and always fascinated me to. Beautiful white houses with red roofs and all this, I'd love to go back there, but that's on, that's on the main island of San Miguel. But I, I was going to go to San Miguel, but there's very few campgrounds around San Miguel. So I went to the island of Tercera, and there's campgrounds that's about every 10 kilometers around Tercera, and it's only 45 miles around. So I'm going out there on the 17th of November. And I'll, uh, I'll I'll just do a five-day walk around Tersera, and and then I'll come up, fly home. Now the, the the reason I'm going there is, that, or one of the reasons I'm going there, I suppose, because of the campgrounds, and because I discovered the Ryanair fly from Porto to Tersera. <laughs> yeah, they they they're, um, they fly out there and fly back, and then I can fly back directly. Well, not, not directly, I'd have to land in Lisbon with um, TAP Airline, the Portuguese airline. They fly from Terceiro to Dublin. And so they have to fly to Lisbon first. You wait a couple of hours in Lisbon and then fly on to Dublin. So that's what I'm going to do next.
0: Well, I'd say you'll absolutely smash it. You'll have no problem at all.
1: <laughs> no.
0: Eugene, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you and I think if I was able to... Achieve half of what you have in your life, I'll die happy. It was an absolute pleasure to know you, meet you, and have this conversation. So, thank you so much for your time.
1: Well, then, thanks for interviewing me.
0: That's great.